Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Community Connections. I'm your host, Cole Warner, and I'm joined today by Emily Thomas. Hey, everyone. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Our guest today is David David Inabinet. He is a uh, elder law attorney with Brinkley, Walser, and Stoner. He's been in practice for over 25 years, and he uh, concentrates in elder law, estate planning, and estate administration. So thank you, David, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, I, first, just um, you know, to set up the topic, we're going to talk a little bit about advanced planning, the uh, sort of significance and why it might be important um, if you're facing um, some tough decisions and difficult conversations, why it might be important for you to um, handle those and really sort of resources for you to do so. So David, if, if I can just ask you to tell us a little bit about sort of what you do and, and why um, it, it can be helpful for uh, people in our community. Sure, Cole. Thank you. So uh, what I found is that surprises uh, in life uh, sometimes stop being fun after about your 21st birthday. So uh, surprises later in life, unplanned events and things catching you off guard and your family uh, off guard can sometimes be more problematic as you get older, um, as you have spouse and children or others that you're uh, caring for or who are relying on you uh, or who may be caring uh, for you and just need to know how they can carry that out for your benefit or be there for you. So the type of planning that I concentrate in helps uh, individuals and families put those uh, tools into place. I like to call it having all the tools in the toolbox that you need. I'm not a very handy person. My wife can attest to that. Uh, and I'm often finding that I don't have the right uh, tool when I, uh, something happens around the house. And so what we try to do is make sure clients have all of the correct tools that might help them address uh, issues as they grow older, uh, whether that be facing some type of disability and naming others to act on their behalf uh, for financial reasons, for healthcare decisions, and certainly to have a plan in place uh, for the time of their death uh, so that their assets, their property is handled in the way they would want it to be. And those who they care about uh, are looked after uh, after they're gone. And I know you referred to them as tools, but could you go over some of the specific things that you use to make sure that those plans are in place? I'm sure you're speaking about like advanced directives, whether that be a living will, healthcare power of attorney, regular power of attorney. So could you just go over that a little bit and kind of make sure people are familiar with what those are? Sure, Emily. So uh, you're correct. Uh, it's kind of uh, two buckets of of documents. One, I think, as you say, are, are called advanced directives, and that would include a document uh, called a power of attorney. And a power of attorney is, is a document whereby I would say, Emily, I appoint you to be my power of attorney to handle making decisions for me uh, about my property, about my bank accounts, seeing that my bills are paid, uh, seeing that uh, my tax return is filed on time. Um, if I have an insurance claim, I have a fender bender or uh, something happens at my home that damages my house and I have to have someone handle a, an insurance claim to get that fixed and I'm not able to do it, then I, I sign a document that gives Emily that power. Um, and I, I like to have 
a backup because what if Emily is not around or decides she's not able to do that? I always like to have someone in the batter's box ready to step in should the primary person that I've picked out uh, ultimately be unable to act for me at the time I might need them. Uh, a one, one that's similar to that uh, is a healthcare power of attorney, and that is strictly to make uh, decisions about my medical care, to give consent for treatment. As we know, anytime we go to a doctor's office, they require us to sign in uh, to give consent for medical treatment. And so this would be naming someone to have that authority. And that would only come into play if, if a doctor says that David is no longer capable of making decisions in his own best interest. I'm not able to communicate those because I have some type of physical impairment or because I'm unconscious or because I have some type of cognitive issue or disability where I can't, I'm no longer competent to make those decisions. And similar to before, I would always like to suggest that there be a backup person uh, because oftentimes with healthcare, unlike financial decisions, um, healthcare can sometimes be more urgent and someone would be needed uh, quickly. So I think it is good to have clear uh, backups or someone as an alternative uh, who could make decisions in an emergency for healthcare reasons. Another advanced directive that goes along with healthcare is a living will. And I think that's sort of a bad name for it because we think of a will as leaving something to someone else. But a living will is really just our end of life philosophy. It's really a statement of our beliefs about how we would or would not want certain care administered um, if we are terminally ill or in a permanent coma or suffer from severe cognitive uh, loss like dementia or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Um, it typically would uh, say that I want to be kept comfortable. Uh, I would like comfort care, palliative care, but I don't want treatment for the purpose of prolonging my life. Um, and I want to stress too that these documents aren't just something you pull off the shelf or download and it's one size fits all. Every person's different. So someone may want to give Emily or Cole authority to do one, two, three, but not X, Y, Z. Uh, they may say, um, I want certain types of care given, but after that point, I really don't want anything more done. So it can really be tailored to uh, what you personally would want done or not done, either uh, in terms of financial or authority about your property or about medical care or your uh, medical treatment. Uh, I typically encourage folks to also sign a HIPAA authorization. Again, all of us have signed that at the doctor's office uh, to allow that particular doctor or facility to share our medical information with whoever we uh, say is okay. But I like to sign one or have clients sign one that allows these healthcare powers of attorney, these people you're naming for making medical decisions, to also have that blanket authority to obtain your medical information anywhere that you might be taken for treatment. And that's to guard against the emergency trip to a hospital where you've never been before. And when you entered, you were not competent to sign a HIPAA form. So it kind of just paves the way for these people who you've now put on your team 
uh, to be able to not only make medical decisions, but to have free access to your medical records, freely talk to your doctors so that they're able to, to be more prepared to serve on your team and hopefully make the right decisions for you. So that's kind of that bucket of advanced directives um, in the toolkit. The, uh, the, the toolkit or the tool that would apply more to when someone passes away would be to have a last will and testament. And that's traditionally the document that would say, what do I want done with any property or money or items that I own in my individual name? And I stress in my individual name because my will can only direct where things go that David owns by himself. If David and my wife own things together, that would pass to her by virtue of that joint ownership. Or maybe I've named her as a beneficiary on a life insurance policy or a retirement account. And so that signed contract that is dealing with just that one thing would direct where that asset goes. So the will deals with what I own personally. And one last suggestion for the toolbox is that uh, some folks would rather have their estate, their property passed on and administered under a trust. And I think people assume that trusts only for rich folks or someone with a complicated estate, but they really um, can be useful tools to uh, ensure the efficiency of passing your estate outside of the court supervised process uh, in a way that's private because those documents don't get filed at the courthouse like a, like a last will does. So they have some benefits to making that process at death more efficient and um, not as lengthy and typically not as costly. Now, some of the things that you just mentioned, I think, um, you know, first off can probably be anxiety provoking for people to have those types of discussions in, in case of the what if, even, I mean, even if that's something that is, you know, you're sort of getting close to that, you know, in our work in hospice, we work with families that, you know, they're getting to that point and that paperwork and those types of planning measures are even more important, but it still can be difficult for them to do. How, what would you say that helps make this sort of, um, this task, this important piece that people need to take care of approachable? Well, I think people sort of approach it um, sometimes as if they're giving up control or by doing this, they're admitting their mortality or they are, um, you know, losing something that they have valued their whole life of being in control of their destiny or an independent person. Um, I think to turn that on its head a little bit, to make it a little more approachable for folks, is to say, you know, if you want to remain in control, meaning we will all reach a point in life where we are diminished in our capacity, whether that's physical capacity, mental capacity, we're all going to get there. Um, and if we want to maintain control and independence in, in the sense of getting to pick who we want to make those decisions, to have uh, power and control over setting that up and making sure that the way we would want it done if we were around or we were able to do so actually happens, then I think it, it really is more of an empowering uh, process 
if if we can approach it in that way and not in the sense of I'm losing something, I'm losing control, or well, I'm I'm going to die now because I've signed my will. Um, I've never known that to happen. Haven't seen that occur yet. Uh, but I think approaching it in the sense that this is an empowering uh, process um, would help help people get on board. I would say a little bit a little bit easier. And and I certainly think now um, with my generation and I think younger who are having to care for older relatives, uh, that was not as much the case years ago because people didn't live as long. So I think seeing that, um, if anyone's had that experience of looking after an older uh, loved one, um, I think they see the value in it uh, already. So that, that would be my, my suggestions on that. And kind of going back to what Cole said, I know they are in, like difficult conversations to have, but I know at hospice we see all too often that people haven't had these conversation conversations and then they wait until it's a crisis situation. So when do you recommend that people start these conversations? And then along with that, how should they go about initiating the process? Well, Emily, I definitely agree with you. It's never easy when the crisis is upon us uh, or an illness is upon us. And then, you know, we, we certainly uh, hesitate to um, say things that might cause a, a ill patient to lose hope or to not uh, feel they have a chance of, of getting through whatever the illness or crisis might be. So it, it is, I think, imperative to talk about it when there's not a problem. Uh, and that applies to so many things in, in life and business to uh, do planning before a problem arises. When everything's going well, that's really the time to have these discussions and have a plan in place. So I don't know if I can pinpoint a correct time, but I certainly think at the point where, first of all, uh, I encourage clients who have kids who turn 18 to start having that conversation as much for the parents as encouraging the 18-year-old to consider having advanced directives because they're now an adult. So parents can't just make decisions for their kids just um, because they've always done that. Once they turn 18, legally, that takes the parents out of the picture. So that, to me, might be a very early starting point to having the discussion both ways, both with your now young adult child but also to start, um, you know, using that as a springboard to talk to your kids about sort of what your plans are and what you would like to see happen um, and make it a process, make it something that gets revisited periodically throughout your life as your kids are young adults and then middle age and own up so that it's, it's not an awkward thing when the time comes that something happens. I think if we talk about it, routinely, uh, then it's, it's not awkward because we've, we've revisited it. We've tweaked it. We've adjusted it, uh, as life went along, as opposed to having to do a huge, uh, massive, uh, project to address it when someone's already not, not feeling their best or at times is no longer even capable to do anything. And I've, I'm sure you've seen that at hospice when, the time has passed when the patient is even capable of setting some of these things up. 
you know, I, we were talking before um, we got on today about uh, how not to uh, sort of approach this in a one size fits all manner. And you mentioned that earlier uh, for people that are um, interested in starting this process. What, what are their first steps? I, I know that you do this for people. Is it reaching out to someone who does uh, elder law or specializes in that? What, where, where do people need to go first? Well, it sounds self-serving, certainly, but I, I would encourage people, much like if I have a uh, um, a running injury or a uh, some type of, um, you know, break my arm or uh, have a fall and, and I go to an orthopedist. I want somebody who um, deals with that all the time, identifies the correct issues, knows how to treat it. I want them uh, looking at that particular issue. I, I wouldn't go to my dentist for that. Uh, I wouldn't go, um, you know, to a pediatrician for that. I'd, I'd go to the, the person who does that day in and day out. And so I would encourage people who are looking at uh, getting into this type of planning to work with somebody who spends the majority of their time focusing and staying um, up to date on matters of estate planning, elder law, estate administration, uh, because that way they they also are familiar with what happens on the back end. You know, how does this play out when someone dies and this will or this trust is put into into motion? And how did it work out? Uh, did did the plan work as anticipated? And so I think you want someone who has been through that from start to finish, uh, and someone who maybe has some background in in general practice, just to know about real estate or um, you know, business law, if you have uh, a, a lifelong family business, that's part of what you're trying to figure out, where does this go? Uh, you might consider someone who has that background as well. Uh, but I would sort of start with someone who, who has dealt with all phases of estate planning through the administration after someone passes away. And, uh, and that's, that's where I would encourage folks to go. Typically, um, lawyers are pretty approachable. I know we don't have that reputation, um, but we really, our, our goal is to help people and to, uh, you know, really find out what, what is it that our clients need, what is their particular situation, and really try to address that in a, in a real personable, uh, tailored way to their needs. Um, I, I, I work a great deal with agencies like yours, like hospice. Uh, I'm out in nursing homes and adult care homes all the time making house calls to patients, I mean, to clients who are patients. And so I think someone who's aware of resources in the community um, that might be not something we provide, but it might be something that we have a relationship with hospice or the life center or adult care uh, facilities, um, senior services to plug people into. So I, I think, you know, even looking for someone who's kind of plugged into those community resources, uh, which you can do through a little bit of a internet search or looking on their website. Okay. Well, David, I appreciate your time. And I'll just ask you one more thing for those that are maybe on the fence about, uh, about how to, or about when to do this, would you say that, um, the most important thing is, is at least having the conversation and starting the process um, so that when we are in a crisis, um, it, it, it's not something that you're having to also add to the plate of what you're dealing with. 
I think so, Cole. I would say, you know, as I mentioned, as a suggestion, starting it way earlier than you would think. Um, starting it when your kid turns 18 or starting it when you have your first child and think about what would happen if we as young new parents passed away. What would we want done um, to look after our our new our newborn? So I think starting the conversation as early as possible is key. And then going from there to revisit that conversation really for a lifetime uh, and and adjusting the compass as you go along, uh, because it can start as a very simple set of documents that we discussed with Emily to begin to begin with uh, this morning and then progress to something that could be more complex or complicated to deal with someone who now is uh, in, in the winter of their life and um, you know, retiring from a job or closing down a business or transitioning uh, a business to someone else and uh, needs more thorough uh, type of planning for that. So I think you're right on target starting the conversation real early and just being open and honest and uh, matter of fact about it. Well, David, I, I really appreciate your time today. And you can find out more information uh, on him in the description of this episode. And we're releasing this as, as part of a uh, April 16th being National Healthcare Decisions Day. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, obviously here at hospice, we provide, you know, a lot of medical, um, spiritual, emotional care. But we also are, um, we want to be a community resource for stuff like topics like this. And, um, you know, we see it all the time, how important having uh, a plan and making sure that um, we are ready for when those things happen. Um, although you can never be completely prepared, it is um, very helpful to um, have those processes in place already. So David, thank you. Thank you, Cole. And I'll just echo something, uh, shout out to all that you all do at hospice and I would say the same thing for your organization. I encourage clients to have the conversation about hospice much sooner than most people feel is necessary. I think we share a similarity there that people are hesitant to seek out um, that resource from you, just like they're hesitant to seek out uh, as early as they should the resources that we provide. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, we appreciate that. Thank you. And if you liked what you heard today, you can rate, review, subscribe, check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, thank you for listening.